Chapter Twenty One, Part Two of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Being a man ever restless, ever questing, wondering always what lay beyond the hills and beyond the swamps and in the mud at the river's bottom, I watched the wild ducks and blackbirds and pondered till my pondering gave me vision and I saw. And this is what I saw the reasoning of it. Meat was good to eat. In the end, tracing it back, or at the first, rather, all meat came from grass. The meat of the duck and of the blackbird came from the seed of the swamp rice. To kill a duck with an arrow scarce paid for the labor of stalking and the long hours in hiding. The blackbirds were too small for arrow killing, save by the boys who were learning and preparing for the taking of larger game. And yet, in rice season, blackbirds and ducks were succulently fat. Their fatness came from the rice. Why should I and mine not be fat from the rice in the same way? And I thought it out in camp, silent, morose, while the children squabbled about me unnoticed, and while Arunga, my mate-woman, vainly scolded me and urged me to go hunting for more meat for the many of us. Arunga was the woman I had stolen from the hill-tribes. She and I had been a dozen moons in learning common speech after I captured her. Ah, that day when I leaped upon her, down from the overhanging tree-branch as she padded the runway. Fairly upon her shoulders with the weight of my body I smote her, my fingers wide-spreading to clutch her. She squalled like a cat there in the runway. She fought me and bit me. The nails of her hands were like the claws of a tree-cat as they tore at me. But I held her and mastered her, and for two days beat her and forced her to travel with me down out of the canyons of the hillmen to the grasslands where the river flowed through the rice swamps and the ducks and the blackbirds fed fat. I saw my vision when the rice was ripe. I put Arunga in the bow of the fire-hollowed log that was most rudely a canoe. I bade her paddle. In the stern I spread a deerskin she had tanned. With two stout sticks I bent the stalks over the deerskin and threshed out the grain that else the blackbirds would have eaten. And when I had worked out the way of it, I gave the two stout sticks to Arunga and sat in the bow paddling and directing. In the past we had eaten the raw rice in passing and had not been pleased with it, but now we parched it over our fire so that the grains puffed and exploded in whiteness and all the tribe came running to taste. After that we became known among men as the rice-eaters, and as the sons of the rice. And long, long after, when we were driven by the sons of the river from the swamps into the uplands, we took the seed of the rice with us and planted it. We learned to select the largest grains for the seed, so that all the rice we thereafter ate was larger grained and puffier in the parching and the boiling. But Arunga I have said she squalled and scratched like a cat when I stole her, yet I remember the time when her own kin of the hillmen caught me and carried me away into the hills. They were her father, his brother, and her two own blood-brothers. But she was mine, who had lived with me. And at night, where I lay bound like a wild pig for the slain, and they slept weary by the fire, she crept upon them and brained them with the war-club that with my hands I had fashioned. And she wept over me, and loosed me, and fled with me, back to the wide sluggish river where the blackbirds and the wild ducks fed in the rice swamps, for this was before the time of the coming of the sons of the river. For she was Arunga, the one woman, the eternal woman. 
She has lived in all times and places. She will always live. She is immortal. Once in a far land her name was Ruth. Also has her name been Isolt, and Helen, Pocahontas, and Unga. And no stranger man from stranger tribes, but has found her, and will find her, in the tribes of all the earth. I remember so many women who have gone into the becoming of the one woman. There was a time that Har, my brother, and I, sleeping and pursuing in turn, ever hounding the wild stallion through the daytime and night, and in a wide circle that met where the sleeping one lay, drove the stallion unresting through hunger and thirst to the meekness of weakness, so that in the end he could but stand and tremble while we bound him with ropes twisted of deer-hide. On our legs alone, without hardship, aided merely by wit, the plan was mine, my brother and I walked that fleet-footed creature into possession. And when all was ready for me to get on his back, for that had been my vision from the first, Selpa, my woman, put her arms about me, and raised her voice, and persisted that Har, and not I, should ride, for Har had neither wife nor young ones, and could die without hurt. Also in the end she wept, so that I was raped of my vision, and it was Har, naked and clinging, that bestrode the stallion when he vaulted away. It was sunset, and a time of great wailing, when they carried Har in from the far rocks where they found him. His head was quite broken, and like honey from a fallen bee-tree his brains dripped on the ground. His mother strewed wood ashes on her head and blackened her face. His father cut off half the fingers of one hand in token of sorrow. And all the women, especially the young and unwedded, screamed evil names at me, and the elders shook their wise heads and muttered and mumbled that not their fathers nor their fathers' fathers had betrayed such a madness. Horse-meat was good to eat, young colts were tender to old teeth, and only a fool would come to close grapples with any wild horse, save when an arrow had pierced it, or when it struggled on the stake in the midst of the pit. And Selpa scolded me to sleep, and in the morning woke me with her chatter, ever declaiming against my madness, ever pronouncing her claim upon me and the claims of our children, till in the end I grew weary, and forsook my far vision, and said, Never again, would I dream of bestriding the wild horse to fly swift as its feet in the wind across the sands and the grasslands. And through the years the tale of my madness never ceased from being told over the campfire. Yet was the very telling the source of my vengeance, for the dream did not die, and the young ones, listening to the laugh and the sneer, re-dreamed it, so that in the end it was Othar, my eldest-born, himself a sheer stripling, that walked down a wild stallion, leapt on its back, and flew before all of us with the speed of the wind. Thereafter, that they might keep up with him, all men were trapping and breaking wild horses. Many horses were broken, and some men, but I lived at the last to the day when, at the changing of campsites in the pursuit of the meat in its seasons, our very babes, in baskets of willow withs, were slung side by side on the backs of our horses that carried our camp trappage and dunnage. I, a young man, had seen my vision, dreamed my dream. Selpa, the woman, had held me from that far desire. But Othar, the seed of us to live after, glimpsed my vision and won to it, so that our tribe became wealthy in the gains of the chase. There was a woman, on the great drift down out of Europe, 
a weary drift of many generations, when we brought into India the short-horned cattle and the planting of barley. But this woman was long before we reached India. We were still in the midmost of that centuries-long drift, and no shrewdness of geography can now place for me that ancient valley. The woman was Nuhilla. The valley was narrow, not long, and the swift slope of its floor and the steep walls of its rims were terraced for the growing of rice and of millet, the first rice and millet we sons of the mountain had known. They were a meek people in that valley. They had become soft with the farming of fat land made fatter by water. Theirs was the first irrigation we had seen although we had little time to mark their ditches and channels by which all the hill waters flowed to the fields they had builded. We had little time to mark, for we sons of the mountain, who were few, were in flight before the sons of the snub-nose, who were many. We called them the noseless, and they called themselves the sons of the eagle. But they were many, and we fled before them with our short-horned cattle, our goat and our barley-seed, our women and children. While the snub-noses slew our youths at the rear, we slew at our fore the folk of the valley who opposed us and were weak. The village was mud-built and grass-thatched. The encircling wall was of mud, but quite tall. And when we had slain the people who had built the wall, and sheltered within it our herds and our women and children, we stood on the wall and shouted insult to the snub-noses. For we had found the mud-granaries filled with rice and millet our cattle could eat the thatches, and the time of the rains was at hand, so that we should not want for water. It was a long siege. Near to the beginning we gathered together the women and elders and children we had not slain, and forced them out through the wall they had builded. But the snub-noses slew them to the last one, so that there was more food in the village for us, more food in the valley for the snub-noses. It was a weary long siege, Sickness smote us, and we died of the plague that arose from our buried ones. We emptied the mud-granaries of their rice and millet. Our goats and shorthorns ate the thatch of the houses, and we, ere the end, ate the goats and the shorthorns. Where there had been five men of us on the wall, there came a time when there was one. Where there had been half a thousand babes and younglings of ours, there were none. It was Nuhilla, my woman, who cut off her hair and twisted it that I might have a strong string for my bow. The other women did likewise, and when the wall was attacked, stood shoulder to shoulder with us, in the midst of our spears and arrows, raining down potsherds and cobblestones on the heads of the snub-noses. Even the patient snub-noses we well-nigh outpatienced. Came a time when of ten men of us but one was alive on the wall, and of our women remained very few, and the snub-noses held parley. They told us we were a strong breed, and that our women were men-mothers, and that if we would let them have our women, they would leave us alone in the valley to possess for ourselves, and that we could get women from the valleys to the south. And Nuhilla said no, and the other women said no, and we sneered at the snub-noses, and asked if they were weary of fighting, and we were as dead men then, as we sneered at our enemies, and there was little fight left in us, we were so weak. One more attack on the wall would end us. We knew it, our women knew it, and Nuhilla said that we could end it first and outwit the snub-noses, and all our women agreed, and while the snub-noses prepared for the attack that would be final, there, on the wall, we slew our women. Nuhilla loved me, 
and leaned to meet the thrust of my sword there on the wall. And we men, in the love of tribehood and tribesmen, slew one another till remained only Horda and I alive in the red of the slaughter. And Horda was my elder, and I leaned to his thrust. But not at once did I die. I was the last of the sons of the mountain, and I saw Horda himself fall on his blade and pass quickly and dying with the shouts of the oncoming snub-noses growing dim in my ears, I was glad that the snub-noses would have no sons of us to bring up by our women. I do not know when this time was, when I was a son of the mountain, and when we died in the narrow valley where we had slain the sons of the rice and the millet. I do not know, save that it was centuries before the wide-spreading drift of all of us sons of the mountain fetched into India and that it was long before ever i was an aryan master of old egypt building my two burial places and defacing the tombs of kings before me i should like to tell more of those far days but time in the present is short soon i shall pass yet am i sorry that i cannot tell more of those early drifts when there was crushage of peoples or descending ice sheets or migrations of meat also I should like to tell of mystery, for always were we curious to solve the secrets of life, death, and decay. Unlike other animals, man was forever gazing at the stars. Many gods he created in his own image and in the images of his fancy. In those old times I have worshipped the sun and the dark. I have worshipped the husked grain as the parent of life. I have worshipped Sar, the corn goddess and I have worshipped sea-gods and river-gods and fish-gods. Yes, and I remember Ishtar, ere she was stolen from us by the Babylonians, and Ea, too, was ours, supreme in the underworld, who enabled Ishtar to conquer death. Mitra, likewise, was a good old Aryan god, ere he was filched from us or we discarded him. And I remember, on a time, long after the drift when we brought the barley into India, that I came down into India, a horse-trader, with many servants and a long caravan at my back, and at that time they were worshipping Bodhisattva. Truly the worships of the mystery wandered as did men, and between filchings and borrowings the gods had as vagabond a time of it as did we. And as the Sumerians took the loan of Shamusnapishtin from us, so did the sons of Shem take him from the Sumerians and call him Noah. Why, I smile me today, Darrell standing, in murderous row, in that I was found guilty and awarded death by twelve jurymen, staunch and true. Twelve has ever been a magic number of the mystery. Nor did it originate with the twelve tribes of Israel. Stargazers before them had placed the twelve signs of the zodiac in the sky, and I remember me, when I was of the Assur and of the Vanner, that Odin sat in judgment over men in the court of the twelve gods, and that their names were Thor, Baldur, Nyord, Frey, Tyre, Bregi, Hemdal, Hodur, Vider, Ul, Forseti, and Loki. Even our Valkyries were stolen from us and made into angels, and the wings of the Valkyries' horses became attached to the shoulders of the angels. And our Helheim of that day of ice and frost has become the hell of today, which is so hot an abode that the blood boils in one's veins, while with us, in our Helheim, the place was so cold as to freeze the marrow inside the bones. 
and the very sky that we dreamed enduring eternal has drifted and veered so that we find to-day the scorpion in the place where of old we knew the goat and the archer in the place of the crab worships and worships ever the pursuit of the mystery i remember the lame god of the greeks the master smith but their vulcan was the germanic wyland the master smith captured and hamstrung lame of a leg by nidung the kind of the nids but before that he was our master smith our forager and hammerer whom we named ilmarinen and him we beget of our fancy giving him the bearded sun-god for father and nursing him by the stars of the bear for he vulcan or wyland or ilmarinen was born under the pine tree from the hair of the wolf and was called also the bear father ere ever the germans and the greeks purloined and worshipped him in that day we called ourselves the sons of the bear and the sons of the wolf and the bear and the wolf were our totems that was before our drift south on which we joined with the sons of the tree grove and taught them our totems and tales yes and who was kashapa who was Peruravis, but our lame master smith our iron worker carried by us in our drifts and renamed and worshipped by the south dwellers and the east dwellers the sons of the pole and of the fire drill and fire socket but the tale is too long though i should like to tell of the three-leaved herb of life by which sigmund made sinfiati alive again for this is the very soma plant of india the holy grail of king arthur the but enough enough and yet as i calmly consider it all i conclude that the greatest thing in life in all lives to me and to all men has been woman is woman and will be woman so long as the stars drift in the sky and the heavens flux eternal change greater than our toil and endeavor the play of invention and fancy battle and star-gazing and mystery greatest of all has been woman even though she has sung false music to me and kept my feet solid on the ground and drawn my star-roving eyes ever back to gaze upon her she the conserver of life the earth mother has given me my great days and nights and fullness of years even mystery have i imagined in the form of her and in my star charting have i placed her figure in the sky all my toils and devices led to her all my far visions saw her at the end when i made the fire drill and fire socket it was for her it was for her although i did not know it that i put the stake in the pit for old saber-tooth tamed the horse slew the mammoth and herded my reindeer south in advance of the ice-sheet. For her I harvested the wild rice, tamed the barley, the wheat, and the corn. For her, and the seed to come after whose image she bore, I have died in tree-tops, and stood long sieges in cave-mouths and on mud-walls. For her I put the twelve signs in the sky. It was she I worshipped when I bowed before the ten stones of jade, and adored them as the moons of gestation. Always has woman crouched close to earth, like a partridge hen mothering her young. Always has my wantonness of roving led me out on the shining ways. And always have my star-paths returned me to her, the figure everlasting, the woman, the one woman, for whose arms I had such need that clasped in them I have forgotten the stars. For her I accomplished odysseys, scaled mountains, crossed deserts. 
for her i led the hunt and was forward in battle and for her and to her i sang my songs of the things i had done all ecstasies of life and rhapsodies of delight have been mine because of her and here at the end i can say that i have known no sweeter deeper madness of being than to drown in the fragrant glory and forgetfulness of her hair one word more i remember me dorothy just the other day when i still lectured on agronomy to farmer boy students she was eleven years old her father was dean of the college she was a woman-child and a woman and she conceived that she loved me and i smiled to myself for my heart was untouched and lay elsewhere yet was the smile tender for in the child's eyes i saw the woman eternal the woman of all times and appearances in her eyes i saw the eyes of my mate of the jungle and treetop of the cave and squatting place in her eyes i saw the eyes of igar when i was ushu the archer the eyes of arunga when i was the rice harvester the eyes of selpa when i dreamed of bestriding the stallion the eyes of nuhila who leaned to the thrust of my sword yes there was that in her eyes that made them the eyes of lili whom i left with a laugh on my lips the eyes of the lady om for forty years my beggar mate on highway and byway the eyes of philippa for whom i was slain on the grass in old france the eyes of my mother when i was the lad jesse at the mountain meadows in the circle of our forty great wagons she was a woman-child but she was daughter of all women as her mother before her and she was the mother of all women to come after her she was sar the corn goddess she was ishtar who conquered death she was sheba and cleopatra she was esther and herodias she was mary the madonna and mary the magdalene and mary the sister of martha also she was martha and she was brunhilde and guinevere isolt and juliet heloise and nicolette yes and she was eve she was lilith she was astarte she was eleven years old and she was all women that had been all women to be i sit in my cell now while the flies hum in the drowsy summer afternoon and i know that my time is short soon they will apparel me in the shirt without a collar but hush my heart the spirit is immortal after the dark i shall live again and there will be women the future holds the little women for me in the lies i am yet to live and though the stars drift and the heavens lie ever remains woman resplendent eternal the one woman as i under all my masquerades and misadventures am the one man her mate End of chapter 21